starting today, all the way to Christmas, we're doing a short sermon series on Advent uh, titled, Why Did Jesus Come? And, and the best person to ask the question is Jesus himself. Uh, so we've been looking at the Bible and looking at specific ways in which Jesus himself said why he came. And we wanted to do a sermon series on Advent um, around that. So this Sunday, we're going to look at the first statement Jesus made, one of the statements. Uh, Mark 10, chapter 32, Jesus said, I have come to serve and not to be served. So I have come. Why did Jesus come? That's the series. That's what the series is all about. Next Sunday, we're going to be looking at uh, Mark 2, 17, where Jesus said, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. And on Christmas Day, we look at John chapter 12. I have come into the world as light. Uh, Jesus, of course, came to bring joy, peace, um, love, joy, peace, and hope into this world. And that's going to be the theme of the carol outreach uh, that we're going to be doing right here on the evening of Sunday, December 18th. So this is uh, our plan uh, for the Advent series leading all the way uh, to Christmas. Today we're going we'll to be looking at the first answer to the question, why did Jesus come? Jesus said, I have come to serve, not to be served. And because Christ came as a servant, it definitely has implications for every one of us in our lives. And that's what we're going to try and unpack uh, this morning. The passage we're looking at is Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45. I've requested Varsha to read it out uh, for us. Mark 10, verses 32 to 45. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he, Jesus, began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him, and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the son of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in all your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, Lord, it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. 
For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, I'd like to draw three things out for us from this passage. Simple things. First, the wrong way to live. Second, the right way to live. And third, the power to live the right life. The wrong way to live, the right way to live, and the power to live the right life. Let's look at the first thing, the wrong way to live. To, the wrong way to live. Can you see the irony of, of what's happening uh, in this passage? Jesus is calling his disciples to himself, and he's telling them that they're going to be spitting on him. They're going to be mocking him. They're going to be crucifying him to death. And within minutes of this disclosure, James and John come to Jesus and have a conversation uh, about who's going to sit at his right hand and who is going to sit at his left. A conversation which is seething with selfish personal ambition. Selfish ambition has blinded them to the coming suffering of Christ. It's amazing. It's amazing how James and John have overlooked the gospel that is right there before their face. Jesus has just told them he's going to be crucified in in pretty graphic detail from what we can see from this passage, and they just look past it. They just completely look past the gospel because of their personal selfish ambition. Um, I'm sure there have been instances where we've all been just preoccupied with something that that we just don't notice uh, someone walking by or something else that's happening around us. I think that's kind of what's happening here. James and John are just so preoccupied with selfish personal ambition, they're just looking past the gospel. They're looking past the suffering of Christ. I know this is relatable to every one of us. You know, like just this morning, one of the things we intentionally do in our times of singing and worship is we want to lift Christ high. And even as Joshua was sharing this morning, we want to preach Christ to our soul. We want to proclaim Christ to our soul. And we do that every Sunday without exception. But come Monday, every one of us, myself first, we're all so vulnerable of just seeing past the gospel and fixating on our own selfish ambition. So this is the wrong way to live. Living not for serving others and Christ, but living for our selfish ambition. You know, selfish personal ambition has this way of blinding ourselves so that we, can, we only see what we want to see. If you look at this passage, uh, they're moving towards Jerusalem. And all the disciples are excited because they're expecting in the Messiah a political savior and not, not a savior for their souls. They want uh, uh, the Roman Empire to go. They want the Jewish kingdom to flourish uh, once again. They want Jesus to become king of Jerusalem. And so when James and John are having this conversation with Jesus, this is not about eternity that they're talking. They haven't really understood it yet. They just want positions of power in Jerusalem when Jesus becomes king, left to his left and to his right. Going towards Jerusalem, their hearts are captivated uh, uh, primarily by the powerful positions they will rise up to and perhaps secondarily to Christ as king. And as they are focused so much on them or on that, they've just looked beyond the gospel. They've just overlooked. 
the suffering of Christ to come. They are blinded to the cross because they can only see the crown on their own heads. This is a dangerous place to be in. Um, to really be focused on our selfish personal ambition and completely ignoring the beauty of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. We've all been in this place. Maybe some of us are in this place right now. We've all, we all know what it means to be so desperately focused on something that we develop a tunnel vision. The only thing we can see in our lives is this thing that we long for, desire for, our souls crave for. And in that tunnel vision, even Christ gets pushed aside to the periphery and sometimes perhaps completely out of our line of vision. And we see this happening with James and John. <clears throat> the, the, the shocking thing here is that this is not the first time Jesus is telling these people, James and John, about the cross. Nor is it the first time that Jesus is calling them to look at serving others above their own personal ambition. Jesus has actually been warning them repeatedly. And the passage that we read is from Mark 10. But if you look at Mark 9, something similar had already played out once. So here Jesus takes his disciples, Jesus is ministering to the crowds, but he takes the twelve aside. He wants some alone time with them. He wants some quality time to do some very important teaching. So he takes them alone by themselves, and, and, he, and he tells them that he is going to be crucified. His hour, his, the reason he came for to die on the cross and to rise again from the dead is coming. He gives them a private revelation. He hasn't yet announced it to the world. He's telling his 12 disciples. Jesus, the disciples enjoy that quality time of teaching with Jesus. And minutes later, they're arguing among themselves as to who is the greatest of them all. And so Jesus has to call them again one more time. He calls them again. He sits them down again. And we see in Mark chapter 9, verse 35, he says, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Even the disciples who were closest to Jesus were not immune to forgetting the gospel for a selfish personal ambition. Uh, Jesus, the crowds were always following them, and then there were some more disciples who were closer, and then closer than those disciples was the twelve, and among the twelve, there were three, Peter, James, and John, who were perhaps closest to Jesus. If you remember the incident on the Mount of Transfiguration, it is only James, John, and Peter whom Jesus takes with him uh, to the mountain, and he's, he's, he's transformed. So there is a core group. And, and this battle for position, this, this thing, battle that will you know, perhaps even put today's politics to shame, uh, is happening among the core three, James and John. And if disciples who are walking <clears throat> so closely with Jesus, if they were not immune to selfish personal ambition taking over, and so that we just shut out our eyes and our lives to serving others, uh, how much more vulnerable we are. <clears throat> we are all vulnerable to this, and this is the wrong way to live, to live by not, in not serving others, but only looking at selfish personal ambition. Excuse me. <clears throat> Personally for me, this is one of the greatest battles 
that I need to fight every single day, day after day after day, every single day. Am I doing ministry to serve Christ and his people, <clears throat> or am I doing ministry to make a name for myself? And every time, every day I wake up, I wake up with the sin sinful desire in me that I need to consciously, intentionally, humbly, prayerfully fight and crucify the sinful desire to do ministry, to make a name for myself rather than to serve Christ and his people. And God knows that I fail on so many days. And only his grace has sustained me and is slowly changing me. <clears throat> this is a battle every one of us have to fight. This is not a one-off battle that we face once in a while in our life. This is a daily battle. Let me take us back to the passage. Uh, something, again, very interesting. Verse 41. So James and John are jockeying for power. Uh, but the rest of the political party is not quite. You see, if some people take some MLAs to a resort, there's another resort that's booked by the others. So, so you know, you have these two disciples jock jockeying, and verse 41 says, and the ten heard it, and they began to be indignant at James and John. The ten come to know. I don't know how. The grapevine, as in politics, always does its work. And uh, they are indignant. They are they're angry. They are seething Hopping mad. You know, what I find amazing here, the other disciples were indignant. Jesus wasn't. You see, the person who should have been indignant really here is Christ himself. But, but he's not indignant. It's only the other disciples. Why is Christ not indignant? He knows the heart of all men. You know, this did not surprise Christ. He sees all his disciples and sees, he's, he sees you and he sees me. And he knows what's in the heart of every one of us. Deep down, we all care more for ourselves than about serving others. So Jesus is not surprised. He knows what is in the heart of man. <clears throat> and lovingly, as we're going to see as this passage and other parts of the sermon unfold, lovingly he helps them see that the greater joy is not in serving self, but in serving others <clears throat> and serving Christ. So that's the first thing I wanted to draw out for us from this passage, the wrong way to live. The second thing I want to look at is, is the right way to live. And quite obviously, the right way to live is not to live uh, a life of selfish ambition, but to live a life of service to God and to men and women. But what exactly does serving mean? Uh, what counts as true service? As a faithful follower of Christ, how can I evaluate myself and, and, and see if I'm indeed serving in a Christ-like measure? What is the measure of faithful service? Jesus answers this question for us in this passage, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus defines serving as the giving away of his life to serve others. Jesus, as we all know, gave all of his life, even to death on a cross, to serve others. 
And so just like, just as Christ gave all of himself, we are all called to give away little pieces, little pieces of our time, our energy, our creative bandwidth, our money, our physical energy, give away our homes, give away little pieces of ourselves to serve others. So service for us is giving away little pieces, little pieces. Not because we need to tick the box, not because it's a command, not because if we do that, God will bless us more, but our hearts being moved by Christ giving all of himself, we give little pieces of ourselves away to serve others. Let's think about this practically. Most of us spend a lot of time at our workplace. Uh, significantly long hours. You, know, you, you don't want me to start off on, on cribbing about the long work hours in Mumbai, right? I mean, start, so at, at least now these days, uh, you're saved from the commute, uh, work from home. You know, companies are trying to get people back, but, but no one's moving, no one's leaving their home. Everybody's working out of home. We are, we are happy. And so we're saved on the commute, but, but perhaps in the working out of home situation, we are actually working longer. We're perhaps not as productive. That's, that's another story. So we spend a lot of hours, 10, 12, 14, 16 hours, uh, weekends, Sundays, even sometimes. So does this count as a serving? Can, can, I, can I say this is, this is serving? Listen, if we're getting paid for what we do, and if we are fighting fiercely at appraisal season for the next increment and, and the next promotion, and we make sure we get what we are due, Otherwise, I'm finding another job. Does that really count as service? I don't think so. Is, is that gospel serving? No, this is just quid pro quo. This is barter. This is a trade. This is an employment contract playing out. So are you telling me why work is irrelevant to God? Of course not. It is God who instituted work. And God has given us our work as a way of worshipping Him. Our work matters to God. Let me help, let me try and clarify this and help us define what service really means in the context of our work. <clears throat> so when you're, hire, when you're hired to deliver a product or a service and, and you're paid well for it, it is no service to deliver that product or service. That's, that's not really serving. But when in the process of delivering that product or service, or service, when you're kind, when you're caring, when you put self-goals, selfish self-goals aside for a minute to, to sacrificially serve others, to, to love your colleagues, to carry their burden a little bit, to really connect with your suppliers and, and, and help them in ways beyond what your company, beyond what your organization expects you to do. When you go out of the way with a heart of compassion, uh, go beyond the brief, walk the extra mile. See, that counts as service in ways that could potentially cost us something. It could cost us valuable time. Maybe they might get a little more credit and maybe the help that you've done to them, you might not get recognized for it. They might get all the credit and we all know that's, that's not an easy feeling to live with. In all of that, to serve like that, see, that is Christ-like serving. And when a subordinate messes up, you, of course you have to tell him that he or she has messed up. 
that's what the job demands, but then to also sit with him compassionately, sit with her compassionately, trying to understand what went wrong, a lovingly uh, a laboring with him or her at the expense of your time and helping them grow. You see, that is Christ-like serving. Uh, most organizations don't pay you for that. Real service is something that we don't get paid for. Don't hear me wrong, and please don't tweet me wrong. I'm not saying that work that you do as an employee does not matter to God. Of course it matters to God. But we all know the truth, do we not? 90% of the time, we do it for ourselves. We do it because we want to get ahead in our career. We do it in all those ways. We, we know in our heart that 90% of the time, it is selfish ambition. It is a preoccupation with ourselves. Of course, we have to work to provide for our families to ourselves. Of course, that's, that's a godly calling too. But are you finding windows? Are you finding spaces, pockets within your long work days where you're joyfully giving away a little piece of yourself so that someone else can be blessed? And even now, would you, would you take a moment, just think about some practical ways that you can serve. At the, let's talk about the workplace first, and, and maybe we'll talk about church in other contexts later. But what are some practical ways in which you can step up serving in a Christ-like manner? What would it look like to just invite a colleague home for a meal? Uh, what would it look like to, to spend that extra time, you know, if that's a subordinate? Uh, what would it look like to, to speak in gentleness and kindness all the time, even when you have to communicate a difficult message, or when, even when you have to give critical feedback. Think of ways, practical ways in which you can step up. You know your context best. Or think of practical ways in which we can serve the church and outside the church. Uh, Aji spoke about Savera. You know, as a church, we partner with this organization which has set up this vocational training center at the heart of Mumbai's biggest red light district. 15,000 women serve there as sex workers. Uh, Pre-pandemic, we would actually go there twice, thrice a year. We haven't been able to go there since the pandemic, but we are going there on December 19th, Monday, Monday evening. We're going to be going uh, right into the heart of Kamatipura, the red light district. Uh, through the pandemic, we served. We served these women with provisions for three months. We, we helped about 200 women make sure they made sure that they had food because there was no money. Uh, could we take a half a day work? I mean, you, to, if you want to serve there, you have to take a, day, a half a day at least off on Monday. Uh, see, serving is not serving on our convenience, right? You don't tell them, uh, we are free on Saturdays. Oh, oh, hang on, Saturday is family day. It's important. I'm just kidding, right? We, 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 we kind of say, okay, I'm free on Saturdays, uh, so I can come. So can you do something around my convenience? No, that's not serving, right? Monday is what's most convenient. That's what's most strategic for them. So we take some time off, take half a day off, and, and, and go and, and, and serve. See, that's stepping out of the comfort zone. Um, uh, you know, uh, most of us, not most of us, uh, many of us show up here at 9.30 in the morning to, to help set up, to prepare everything. Uh, is that something you'd like to sign up for uh, once a month? Uh, if that's not your thing, uh, what about just inviting someone home for a lunch, someone you don't know all that well, uh, someone who's maybe just new into the community, uh, maybe someone who's just on the fringe trying to understand what New City is all about. Why don't you just invite them home for a dinner? Uh, uh, spend some time with them. That's a, that's a great way of serving. 
and serving in ways where you may not be noticed, you may not get the credit for what you're serving, uh, and, and, and not be too bothered about it, doing that joyfully because we love Jesus. See, that's, that's serving. And that's, I think, the key to real service. It's a service that no one notices. It's a service that no one recognizes. It is only in those spaces where we're not recognized, where nobody can see that we are serving, that we're truly giving away a piece, a little piece of ourselves to bless others. I know as well as you do that all of this is easily said, really hard to live it, really, really hard to live this consistently, day after day, not just in Advent season, all through. So how on earth am I going to find the power to live like this? Not just one, not just one off, not just hear the sermon and do something this week and then that's it. No, no, not that way. In a consistent way where it becomes our lifestyle, how on earth are we going to find the power? That brings us to the third and the last thing I wanted to draw out for us from this passage, the power to live the right life, the power to live the right life. You know, the amazing thing about Christ, the amazing thing about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God himself, is, not, is that he didn't just come down here on earth to teach us to serve, but he came down to earth to actually live a life of service. He, did, he just didn't teach serving, he demonstrated serving. And the greatest way in which he served us is by going up to the cross, dying in our place, taking upon his body the punishment that you and I, we rightly deserved for our sins. He took it upon himself. That's the ultimate act of service. But all through his life, even before he, his death on the cross, Jesus demonstrated service in so many ways. And one of the greatest ways in which he truly demonstrated servanthood was on that night of the Passover when he washed the feet of his disciples. That night, uh, Jesus knew the hour had come. He knew he was going to be crucified in just a few hours. Uh, he and his disciples were having supper together in the middle of the supper. And just before the supper, all the jockeying for power that we've been reading about, we're looking on, all that's happening. Uh, that's the backdrop. That's the subtext to the supper, who's going to be the greatest, who's rep, who's right. Uh, another disciple, he's not at all bothered with all this politics. He's finding his own route to power. He's gone and sold out Jesus already. Judas, uh, they're all there. Uh, that's the context. And Jesus is having supper with his disciples. In the middle of the supper... Jesus rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments. He took a towel. He wrapped it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin. And one by one, one by one, he began to wash the feet of the disciples. He washed their feet one by one and used the towel that was wrapped around his waist to wipe their feet. Imagine the atmosphere that evening. Imagine uh, what, what, what the disciples would have experienced in their heart. Imagine 
the healing to their selfish personal ambition that they would have experienced in the moment when the Son of God, God himself, stooped low to wash their feet. We read in John chapter 12, verse 14, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, his rightful place, Jesus said to him, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. You also ought to serve one another. The Bible says that Jesus, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He says he is the, the book of Hebrews says, he is the radiance of God's glory. He says, it says, it says Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. Jesus is God himself. And so we have in Christ, incarnate, God himself going down on his knees, bending low to wash the feet of his disciples. I don't think we can ever process that fully. How on earth are we going to internalize this? God stooping down to wash the feet of men. But that's exactly what is happening here. Why do we find it so hard to serve like this? Can you serve like this? Can I serve like this? I cannot. I struggle to, to bend so low. I expect the right responses from all of you for every act of service that I do. If you don't respond right, maybe you've sensed it already, maybe you'll sense it in the coming days, you will sense a little bit of coldness from me. At least disappointment, if not coldness. I, I find it hard. You know, when I'm not acknowledged, when I'm not thanked, uh, this is just a joke, don't get me wrong, October was pastor appreciation month, nobody appreciated me. It's just a joke, right? I just discovered October was pastor appreciation, appreciation month recently. We all expect something, do we not? And it is not easy for us to, to bend down like that and, and, and to serve. But why? Why are we so afraid of serving? Deep inside, the truth is we are all afraid of serving. And I think, I think we're afraid of serving because when we serve, we lose something of ourselves. We lose something. Every act of genuine service costs us something. We are poorer for it. And because of our serving, we are poorer and somebody else is better for it. Deep, deep, deep down, we're afraid that somebody else is going to get ahead of us. And we're afraid. And this fear plays out in many ways, depending on what our sin patterns are, what, what our struggles are, depending on how we have been sinned against in, in the earlier years of our, of our upbringing. For some, this might go, if I give so much, will I be in want in my time of need? If I'm giving away so much, will I be in want in my time of need? At the workplace, if I serve someone so sacrificially and don't get recognized, could it be that I get left behind and they move ahead in life, in their careers. Deep down, we don't serve because we believe wrongly that serving will leave us as losers. We do not serve because we are insecure. 
But Jesus can heal us of this insecurity. Jesus can set us free to, to enable us to serve joyfully and sacrificially. I want to close by looking at how could Jesus serve like this? How could God himself bring himself to serve us like this by washing the feet of his disciples? The answer is right there in the passage where Jesus is washing his feet, washing the feet of his disciples. John chapter 13, verses 3 to 4. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and he started washing. He, knowing the Father had given all things to him, knowing he had come from God and he was going back to God, Jesus was absolutely secure in his sonship with the Father. He was absolutely secure. It was the security that set him free to serve like that. Now, if only, if only we could grow in our security in Christ, to that extent, we will also be freed to serve joyfully. I think that is the key. Only our security in Christ can take away our false fears, our fake fears, our unreal fears, and empower us slowly to serve a little bit like Christ. And Jesus offers us this security in God. Give me a minute and I'll show you. Let's go back to James and John and they're jockeying for power. Do you remember what they were fighting about? James and John, Mark chapter 10, verse 37. And they, James and John, said to Jesus, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So the battle, all the politics was about sitting, sitting to the left and to the right of Christ in his glory, sitting. James and John did not know something that we all know. That's there for us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. James and John were fighting for a seat they already had. James and John were fighting for a seat not knowing that after the resurrection of Christ Jesus, they too would be seated in Christ, with Christ at God's right hand. And unlike James and John, we know where we came from and we know where we are growing. This verse reminds us, the verse that I just read from Ephesians. The verse that I just read from Ephesians reminds us that we came from the depths of sin. We came from brokenness. That's where we came from. But where are we going? We are growing as this verse promises us, as this verse assures us. We are going to be seated. We are already seated, this verse assures us. And with Advent, with the second Advent, when Christ comes again, all of the Bible assures us that we are going to be seated. Now we are seated spiritually with Christ in the heavenly places. When Christ comes again, we will be seated physically with him in Christ, at, with, with, with God, with God at God's right hand, with Christ in the heavenly places. You see, in Christ, we already have that assurance 
to the extent we're able to internalize this and by the power of the Holy Spirit in the presence of God's community as we slowly, step by step, day by day, learn to grow in in realizing and believing and living out this truth, to that extent, slowly, day by day, we will grow in Christ-like serving. You know, the call to worship, I mentioned that Advent is a time of transformative Longing. Transformative longing. We are longing for Christ to come. I feel the weight of my selfishness. I feel the weight of my selfishness every single day. I long for it to go away. I know it's going to go away a little piece by piece, but I know that till Christ comes again, it's not going to go all go away. It's going to go away in full only when Christ comes again. And so I long for the coming of Christ. In every area where we see our own sins, like, like this morning, when we see our selfishness, when we see our reluctance to serve, all we need to do is to fix our eyes on Jesus. We need to fix the, our eyes on God himself who came to serve and not to be served. He came to serve us. He came to serve us so that we would become worthy enough to serve him. Would you join with me as as I pray, as we all pray together for ourselves? Let's pray that God would give us grace and he would help us day by day in the presence of his people, the gospel community, by the power of his spirit, through the working of his word, to take slow steps. Settle for nothing less than giving away a piece of yourself. Let us pray. Uh, Father, I stand uh, remembering your words that those who teach will be, will be judged at a, at a different level. And uh, I, I feel the weight of my own selfishness. I feel the weight of my own insecurities, Lord, not just selfishness, insecurities. What if someone gets ahead? Uh, what if someone does better? And what if someone's more recognized than I do? And, and I know my reluctance to serve comes from some of these And so I pray for myself as I pray uh, for all of us. And we pray together, Lord, crying out to you. We pray together. Lord, help us. Help us fix our eyes on Jesus. Spirit of God, we welcome you. Only you can turn our distracted hearts away from everything else and, and help us to focus on Jesus, to enjoy his beauty only, Spirit of God, only you can enable us, enable our hearts to be captivated by the beauty of Christ that we might truly crucify our flesh, Lord, experience victory, rise beyond our insecurities, rise above our insecurities and willingly let go. Willingly let go. Willingly put your kingdom and your glory above the petty little kingdoms that we are all building for ourselves. Help us, Lord, we pray. Help us. Thank you, Lord. Even as we move into communion, May we remember that we are partaking of the body and the blood of the one who came to serve and not to be served. And may his character be infused into us even through communion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.